John. I'm one of the members here at Bretton Baptist Church. Um, for those of you who were forced to watch me open last week's online church service in my dressing gown, I can only apologise. But it is an honour and a privilege to have been asked to speak here today. Brian gave me this passage in Luke chapter 2 and asked me to speak on capturing divine moments. Although technically his email said capturing diving moments. It took me a little while, but I eventually figured out that it was a typo, and so I stopped hassling Tom Daly for an interview. I got a bit aggressive on Twitter, actually. Sorry, Tom. Maybe I should have been going after Neymar instead. You know, Neymar, diving. Anyway, I also cancelled the Amazon order I'd put in for all that scuba gear. All right, enough about that. What is a divine moment? Is it the same as destiny? Is it like in those films, I don't know if you've seen them, Serendipity? or sliding doors, you know, where every action has a far-reaching consequence. If I miss the train, do I meet the love of my life? If I catch the train, do I end up in an accident? Well, does God work like that? We're about to meet two characters, Anna and Simeon, who seemed destined to meet Jesus in the temple. And if God has divine moments planned for my life, do I need to do anything specific about that? Or do I just bumble along on autopilot because God's got them all lined up anyway? When I asked God what he wanted to say today, I felt that he said, keep going, I am with you. You matter, I have a purpose for you. And you have a part to play. There are things that only you can say. You know, when I, was at, when I was preparing this, I also thought I'd look at one of Ray Markham's books, Bit Part Players of the Bible. And when I opened it, I noticed that he'd inscribed it. And you probably can't see it from there, but it says to John and Becky, you have an important part to play. Between you and me, I'm pretty sure he wrote that in everybody's book. But, you know, it was really affirming and encouraging that 10 years after I bought the book, 
And just as I was about to prepare a preach on the very subject that it was written there, uh, prophetically spoken over me. So let's read together from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40, and explore what God has to say. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshipping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favour was on him. The trouble with a lot of the Christmas story and the narrative that surrounds it is that it's so familiar to us, we often gloss over it a bit. Here we've got a nice little anecdote from Mary and Joseph where they take Jesus, present him at the temple, a crazy old man prophesies over him and a crazy old woman bursts into song and starts babbling to everyone who will uh, listen to her about it. It's a bit odd, actually, a bit weird when you, when you think of it like that. It's an interesting story. But why is it here? Why is it in the Bible? Well, the first thing we learn from this passage is about Mary and Joseph themselves. We know from this passage that they were devout followers of Jewish religious traditions. Jesus was circumcised when he was eight days old, and here he's only 40 days old. And they've traveled to Jerusalem to give a sacrifice at the temple and to consecrate their son Jesus to God. And this is commanded in Exodus chapter 13. And we also learn from this passage that they were very poor because we know from Leviticus 12 that only people who couldn't afford to sacrifice a lamb were allowed to sacrifice 
two doves or young pigeons instead. You've probably heard all this analysis before, but it still doesn't answer my question, which is why did Dr. Luke choose to include it in his gospel? You see, it's not in any of the other gospels. And even here in Luke, it's sandwiched between the wonderful story of the angels and the shepherds and a sort of training montage that shows Jesus growing up very quickly. What's interesting to me is that the other three gospels were written by Matthew, John and Peter, because he heavily influenced Mark's gospel. They were all disciples, so they all wrote from their own experiences of being within Jesus's closest circle of followers. Now, Luke wasn't even a Jew, let alone a disciple. He had spent a decade hanging out with Paul, so he knew what he was talking about, but he'd set out to carefully research and document an orderly account of, of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then the, the life of the early church in Acts. And that was predominantly so that uh, non-Jewish readers would understand the, the gospel that they were hearing about. I suspect Luke interviewed the main protagonists and, and wrote his gospel based on these eyewitness accounts. The story certainly adds weight to Luke's claim that Jesus is the son of God and that he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to, to reveal God to non-Jewish people. But I think there's a deeper lesson here for us today in this passage. You see, the only witnesses to this story were Mary and Joseph themselves. I'm pretty sure by the time Luke wrote his gospel that Anna and Simeon would have died. Why, after more than 30 years, did Mary and Joseph still remember something that happened between the wonder and chaos of the stable and the fear and a trauma of their escape to Egypt as refugees. Clearly, the timing and power of this moment stayed with them in a way that neither Anna nor Simeon could have predicted. Look at verse 33. It says they marveled. They were speechless at what Simeon said. Well, why? Think, think back less than a year ago, the angel Gabriel himself had appeared to Joseph and appeared to Mary and told them exactly what was going to happen and exactly how special Jesus was, right? So why did this surprise them at all? Frankly, 40 days ago, they'd had an incredible visit from a bunch of shepherds talking about angels singing on the hillside. Why did they marvel at what Simeon said? I'll tell you why. They were knackered. As many of you will know, Becky and I have two lovely daughters, age nine and six. And so I started to try and think back to the first six weeks after our eldest daughter was born. And it's hazy, but here's what I remember. I remember our first trip out of the house. We went to Costa in Hampton. We chose it because we knew they, they were quite happy for people to breastfeed in the store and we could probably melt away into the background. Frankly, we just went out to prove to ourselves that we could leave the house. So I remember that. I remember desperately trying and failing to get our daughter to sleep in a Moses basket. I don't know what it was about our kids, but they seem to have this hair trigger. Oh, they're asleep, they're nice and cosy. Still asleep, still asleep, still asleep. Yeah, asleep, asleep, asleep. Oh, I vividly remember that. I remember fondly having meals brought to us by church members from Breton. It was such a wonderful ministry, you know, 
for the first two weeks after our child was born, someone would just turn up at five o'clock and bring us a hot meal. It was incredible. And I remember some of those meals very specifically. It was a wonderful time. And the only other thing I remember was a projectile poo. Um, and I remember it because, frankly, I was changing my daughter on, on the changing mat, doing what you do, and all of a sudden she exploded, and this poo just shot out, and, uh, and it hit the door. And I remember aghast, thinking, wow. I was caught between horror and, and fierce pride. I, I even got a tape measure out and I measured it and it was a six foot poo. And so, yeah, there were these feelings of kind of, a, of fatherly pride that my daughter could have done such a feat. And then the horror, realising that I'm going to have to clean the room up after her. Uh, you know, I can't remember anything else about those six weeks of my life. You see, the sleep deprivation of living with a new baby is debilitating. For us, it felt like a bomb had gone off. I, I couldn't have told you what day of the week it was most of the time. And here we have Mary and Joseph. Not long ago, they travelled all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And if you didn't realise it, that's about 97 miles they went on foot. And it's not flat either. There's, there's roughly 6,000 feet of climbing involved in that journey. Now, perhaps also, because there was nowhere for them to stay in Bethlehem, they travelled all the way back again to Nazareth. I don't know. And then either they went from Nazareth to Jerusalem here to present Jesus at the temple or they went from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. So that's either another 93 miles or it's about six miles. But he, I mean, even if it's only six miles from Bethlehem, that's still two hours of walking in the heat with a six week old baby. And then straight away after this account, they traveled all the way back to Nazareth again. That's another 93 miles. I've never been more grateful for my car. Why were they doing all of this? <coughs> well, they were following tradition. They were doing what was expected of them. Certainly, if they wanted to honour God, they had the right motives. But I suspect that they didn't really expect to receive much themselves out of these proceedings. They were going through the motions effectively. Then all of a sudden... A pair of crazily excited geriatrics burst into song and want to hold your baby. Would you hand your baby over in those circumstances? Then they remember. Though their brains are like porridge from living with a newborn and their limbs ache, their legs feel like jelly, they remember that their baby, Jesus, is the most special human being ever to have been born and that their role as parents was pivotal. Mary and Joseph were deeply impacted by this moment. It stayed with them. Possibly it sustained them in some of the harder times that were to come. And they must have passionately remembered this moment and recounted it to Luke and to Paul for them to have included it in Luke's gospel here. So just who were this crazy pair of geriatrics. Let's start with Anna. She's rather unflatteringly described as very old. She'd lost her husband a long time ago and now she hung out in the temple, night and day, fasting and praying. She's described as a prophetess, which isn't a special title or job role. It just means that she was able to hear from God and she told people what she heard. <clears throat> in fact, along with the shepherds, I think she was the first evangelist because no sooner had she encountered Jesus, she immediately began telling people about him. 
But why did Anna hear from God? Well, I think it's because she positioned herself as close to God as she could every single day. And perhaps she felt that she had nothing else left. You see, Luke's stories so often feature people from a lowly status or a lowly background. And it's a fantastic reminder now that Jesus welcomes all, no matter what your background, no matter what your abilities or your intellect, all are welcome and all have a part to play. So who in our congregation, who at Breton, is considered unimportant or perhaps do we tend to ignore? What can you do to flip that situation around and encourage them today? And if you're someone who is holding on to God's promises and perhaps you feel today like all you have left is prayer, then know this, God loves you deeply. He still wants to speak to you. He wants to use you to bless others and that your prayers are powerful indeed. So what about Simeon? Well, we don't know a lot more about Simeon. Um, Well, my daughter, she went away to draw a picture rather randomly last weekend and she came back with this rather fetching little um, figurine of Simeon because she knew I was preaching on him. And uh, here you can see him deliriously happy holding the baby Jesus, which I think is rather delightful. Now, I have tended to make a mistake in the past of thinking that Simeon was a priest or perhaps acting in an official capacity in the temple that day, but that is not true. You see, Simeon was an ordinary man who lived in Jerusalem at the time. We don't know his age, but it's fair to assume that he was reasonably old because he seemed so happy uh, at peace with the idea of him dying. He's described as righteous, which means that he follows God's commands and lives in a right relationship with God. And devout, which means in this context, almost wary, uh, God-fearing and reverent. So he's righteous, he's devout. And in fact, in verse 29, he refers to himself as doulos, which means slave or, or bond servant. So he is humble. He considers himself to be God's slave. And he is waiting Uh, expectantly for the consolation of Israel, which is a fancy term for a time when God will gather up and rescue his people once more. And he had received a prophecy that he wouldn't die until he'd seen with his own eyes the the saviour, the Christ, the person that will gather up God's people. We're told that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon and had led him to the temple. Now, to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in Old Testament times, pre-Jesus' resurrection, that was pretty rare. So certainly it was a special gift. But actually, I don't think it's particularly helpful to think of it in that way. You see, if we're not careful, we tend to assume that every encounter with the Holy Spirit in the Bible was larger than life and grandiose. And we end up surmising that characters like Anna and Simeon were uber-holy, constantly steeped in the spirit. God must have practically shouted at Simeon or or, or he was so in tune with the spirit that he knew exactly what God was saying. He knew exactly what he had to do right when he needed to do it. Well, I don't know about you. I'm not buying it. The Holy Spirit was on them, yes. But if you believe in Jesus today, the Holy Spirit's on you. The Holy Spirit is on me right now and 
I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm, I'm not shaking uncontrollably. I'm not doing anything particularly weird. Simeon was moved to go to the temple court, but do you think he was absolutely certain that he'd heard God correctly at the time? He probably had other things to do that day, people to see, places to go. God was disrupting his routine. Did he know why at that point? If you look closely at verse 27, it suggests that he was at the temple before Mary and Joseph arrived. It's not like they just arrived at the same time coincidentally. How long did he have to wait? While he was waiting, do you think he doubted whether he'd heard God correctly? And again, did he know why he was there? And, and when he held Jesus in his arms and he spoke that wonderful prophecy that we now call the Nunc Dimittis, did God dictate that to him? Was it like he had an earpiece in his ear and God was saying, say this, say that, say this, say that? Or did he just say what occurred to him at the time? Perhaps did the words he said, did that prophecy only take shape after he started to speak it? Of course, we'll never know these things, but I suspect we might be surprised at just how much faith Simeon needed that day and how uncomfortable and nervous he might have been. <clears throat> so today, I want to dispel this myth that you have to be super spiritual in order to hear from God and be used by him in a powerful way. I believe Anna and Simeon were ordinary folks. They positioned themselves to hear from God, and so he spoke to them. And what they did, I reckon, in the temple that day, to them, felt like a natural expression of their faith. I doubt they had any idea of the impact and impression that their words had on this young couple, Mary and Joseph. They brought their offering, which was a willingness to, to listen to God and be used by him. And they became a tiny jigsaw piece in the gospel message for all time. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I think there are three ways that we can learn to be a little bit more like Simeon and Anna. <clears throat> First of all, we need to be available. A couple of weeks ago, Jill Watkins talked about saying yes to Jesus and choosing to be part of his story. Well, <clears throat> we can't do that if we don't know our role, if we don't know what we're supposed to do. We need to position ourselves so we can hear from him. And that, that means carving time out of our precious and busy schedules, even if it's just for five minutes a day. It means stopping, saying yes to Jesus, praying and listening. <clears throat> Anna had made being available to God practically into an art form, but full disclosure, I'm awful at it. I'm terrible at this. <clears throat> but I read something really interesting recently about if you're trying to develop a new habit, you shouldn't pressurize yourself with the weight of expectations. So for instance, if you're trying to motivate yourself to go out for a 5k run, you don't say to yourself, go out for a 5k run. You say, you resolve just to put on your running shoes, your running gear and stand outside the front door. Give yourself permission to quit after that if it's raining and you really don't feel like it. The thing is, having got to that position, you, you end up going for a run anyway. You see, you position yourself to go for a run and you end up going for a run. So if like me, you, you've always struggled to make time for daily prayer, to focus prayer in your life. Why not designate somewhere to be your prayer place, a favorite chair uh, or, 
or even going out for a walk or something like that. But if you can put a Bible there and then just, just resolve to go and sit in that place, sit in that chair once a day and say, hi God, have you got anything for me? And that's it. That's all. That's, that's the only thing you need to try and accomplish. Give yourself permission to quit after that if you're not feeling it. But I'll bet that most of the time, more often than not, if you position yourself in that prayer place and stop and say, hi God, you will pray and you will receive from God. And ask for more of the Holy Spirit. There'll be a time where hopefully soon, when we're allowed back into the building, we're allowed back into church. And when that happens, there will be opportunities to receive prayer and fresh spiritual anointing. You know, when we do that in church, so many people sit back like this with their arms folded. And this this here, it's safe, isn't it? It's passive. It's non-committal. There's no risk involved in doing this. Don't be like this. Get up. Position yourself to receive from God and he might just do something wonderful through you. Okay, okay, I get the message. I'm available already, but, but how do I actually hear from God? Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the story where Samuel as a boy is asleep and God calls to him and he gets up and he runs to Eli, his master, and says, what do you want? And Eli says, oh, go back to bed. I didn't call you. And, and this happens three times before Eli finally cottons on to what's going on and, and reckons it's God. And he says, look, if it happens again, just, just say, speak God, your servant is listening. You see, Samuel hadn't learned to recognize God's voice yet. <laughs> you know, God never wakes me up in the middle of the night. I wonder why. I figure it's probably because he knows me full well and he knows that if he did, all he'd get is... You see, for about half an hour after I wake up, I'm practically a zombie. I'm like a walking blancmange. I'm completely useless. That's a weird image. Let's move on. Have you... Imagine if you have a child or, or a very dear friend, someone that you love, and they run up to you and they say, Hi, have you got a minute? I, I really need to speak to you. Would you just usher them out the door and close the door behind them without uttering a word? Of course you wouldn't. And if we, though we're imperfect, would, would be so desperate to, to receive and talk to someone that we love, how much more the Father, who loves us perfectly and wants to be in relationship with us, how much more will he speak to us if we approach him and say, hi, we'd like to speak to you. So I promise you this morning, if you don't feel like you're hearing from God, it ain't because he isn't speaking. It's because you think he's Eli. I want to share a few things that I've learned over the years about how God speaks to me. I think it's really important that we get this. You see, God is our father. He's relational. He's not going to bark at us in some big booming voice. I, I don't talk to our kids like that. Uh, if I'm trying to affirm them or bless them or engage with them about their day or teach them uh, or encourage them, you know, I, I speak intimately with them. The only time I bark at them is if they're doing something really wrong or if they're about to step out in front of a bus. I say, stop. Uh, and God will enunciate to you like that if you're in danger. But, but most of the time, if he wants to speak to you and relate to you through his Holy Spirit, he's going to use intimacy. 
So for me, that sounds the same as my internal head voice. So it sounds just the same as when I think, oh, did I remember to lock the car? So when I ask God to speak, he invariably does, but I need to learn to filter out my own thoughts and recognize God's voice. Well, how do you recognize that? Well, for me, it's it's just come through experience and, and often I find that God's words just have a, a small sense of peace about them and a wisdom to them. But again, you know, God will never say anything that doesn't align with his Bible, his word. So you can test what you've heard. Does it align with what the Bible says? And also, if you're in any doubt, then go and seek out some wise Christian friends that you trust and talk to them about it as well. If you think God's given you a message for someone else, or perhaps even a prophecy for yourself, it's really important that you test it and weigh it. And there's a very easy test to do. All you need to do is turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. And there it says God gives prophecy for three reasons. For strengthening, for encouraging, or for comforting others. So if the word that you think you've received doesn't build up, fire up, or shore up the other person, or quite simply, it's not from God, you can just release it. And also ask God about the timing, because it may be that you've received the right word, but it's not the right time to give it. So be prepared to be patient and wait and hold on to it if it's not right for now. Okay, so we're available. Second, we need to be vulnerable. If you believe God's given you a word for someone, well, it takes guts to be obedient and share it, just like Simeon did. We need to risk feeling foolish if perhaps we've got it wrong or the other person responds negatively to it. But it's also one of the best ways of learning how to discern God's voice, how to recognise it. In 2018, I went to my first ever Naturally Supernatural Christian conference. Uh, we went with a few families from Breton Baptist Church. We had a wonderful time camping for a week. And uh, Anna, Anna Carsten and I chose to go to a seminar series run by Wayne Drain on hearing from God through prophecy. <clears throat> the first seminar was packed out, but Anna and I, we're no spring chickens. We're not wet behind the ears. We are wise. We've been to events like this before and had to sit on hard, cold concrete floors. So we took our camping chairs. Oh yes. Sure enough, we got into this seminar and there was not a seat left in the venue and people were just starting to set up on the floor. And what did we do? Ah. <laughs> so as the seminar progressed, I was sitting there rather smugly in my comfortable chair looking around at all these people in discomfort around me on the concrete floor and pitying them. Uh, and there was even one guy over there who'd given up completely and he was lying flat on his back with his eyes closed. And I, I thought, fair one, mate, you, you probably had a really rough night camping and you're catching 40 winks. Well, Wayne ended his seminar, uh, a complete surprise to me, by telling us that we were going to do a practical now and he asked us to get into small groups of about six or eight people, preferably strangers. Oh my word, what have I got myself into here, I thought. Well, uh, you know, I, I was there, couldn't back out now. So I looked around at this group, uh, including that lying down guy, actually, uh, that I was now with. <clears throat> it was weird. We had to do it with our eyes open. So we were looking at each other and saying, God, do you have anything for this person? Do you have anything for this person? 
fire. Was that you, God? Or did I just imagine that? There's fire in you. Okay, well, look, if that's you, that, frankly, that seems a bit obvious, rather boring and non-specific, but hey, okay, let's go with it. If that's you, God, is there anyone particular that you want me to give that message to? Who's that for? That guy. Lying down guy. Well, now I knew I'd made it up because I, I figured, I'm just, it's just say what you see, isn't it? Michael Aspel stuff. I, I judged him, I think, for lying down and probably falling asleep in a seminar. And now I'm in a place where I'm supposed to be spiritual and holy. And I'm thinking, oh, he's lying down, but there's fire in him. You know, <laughs> I figured I'd just made it up. You see, the devil, the enemy is always ready and waiting to cast doubt on what you think you've heard from God. He wants to steal away what God wants to give you. Wayne then asked us to share what we'd received from God within our small groups. <clears throat> and so one by one, we went around the group and one by one, every single person said, oh, well, no, I didn't really hear anything. No, I, I just didn't feel anything. No, I don't think I got anything. <sighs> it came to my turn and I didn't think I'd had anything either, frankly. Uh, and I desperately wanted to say that, but I couldn't. I thought, for heaven's sake, John, you've come to a, a seminar on hearing from God through prophecy in for a penny and for a pound. So I'm, rather apologetically, I started saying, well, I, mm, I maybe perhaps, possibly a little bit. I think I might just have heard something from God, but probably not, but I'm not sure. Maybe. And I think perhaps it might. Just be for you, lying down guy. But I don't know, so, you know, here it is. And then as I started to speak, it a funny thing happened. I got a little bit more clarity and there was a little bit more detail in what I said. You're quiet, I said. But God sees the passion in you. There's fire in you. He put it there and he loves it. And the response of the group was, oh, okay. So I thought, well, that one sank like a stone. Clearly wasn't from God, whatever, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained and all of that. And, and then the seminar ended. Uh, there was quite a hubbub uh, of, of people thronging for the exit. And I was chatting to Anna about how she'd found it and what she thought. And then out the corner of my eye, I see lying down guy pushing through the crowd, making a beeline towards me. And sure enough, he came up to me and introduced himself. Turns out his name isn't lying down guy, it's Chris. And Chris is the pastor of a church of about 300 people. And the thing is that very morning, he'd been in the main worship meeting for the conference, which is where there were thousands of people all passionately praising God, wonderful, massive music and everything. And he said, I couldn't raise my voice in worship. I couldn't sing a word this morning. I couldn't bring myself to. And he'd spent the whole day feeling ashamed. He'd spent the whole day looking around at his congregation, his flock, and telling himself, you hypocrite. How can you lead these people when you can't even lead yourself to worship, when you can't even lift your spirit enough to sing a word of praise to God? And he said, I feel so blessed and affirmed 
and loved by God through through that word that you gave me. You see, God didn't want him to feel like that. And God was prepared to use an idiot like me in his story. I was flabbergasted and it was wonderful. And that was a prophetic word. It, it, there were, it was nothing groundbreaking or earth shattering. There were no flashes of lightning involved. But it was a prophetic word. It was simple. It was small. But it was rich with life, with blessing and with significance in a way that I could not have known beforehand. If I hadn't shared it, I hope and I trust that God would have found another way of reaching Chris. So I had the choice. And I'll wager almost every other person in that seminar would have received something, would have heard something from God. Some vague thought would have occurred to them, but they didn't want to risk feeling stupid or perhaps they just didn't recognize that it was from God and they thought they'd made it up. But at least they went to the seminar. There were thousands of other people at the conference who wouldn't even have set foot in the door. Does that make them bad Christians? No, of course it doesn't. That's not what this is about. This is about your journey with Christ. You have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus and to live in the supernatural truth of the Holy Spirit. You see, we're Christians. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the supernatural exists and, and that we have power in this world. You get to choose to live in that supernatural truth of the Holy Spirit. Choose to be a part of God's story in an incredible way. You know, I spent the rest of that week asking God to give me more prophetic words. And he gave me loads of them. And do you know, every single time, I thought they were stupid. <laughs> and every single time, I doubted them. And I tried to weasel my way out of giving them to the person. But almost every single time, almost every single time, they spoke powerfully to the person involved in a beautiful way and in a way that I could not have predicted beforehand. And yeah, occasionally I got it wrong and it was a little bit awkward, but you know what? It was only a little bit awkward and it was so worth it for the times when it was right. And you know, if you're an introvert like my wonderful wife, Becky, and the idea of blurting out some half-baked thought to a complete stranger fills you with sickening dread. And I get it a bit because it fills me with dread. But for introverts, it must be horrific. Well, don't worry. I have found also that the, the act of writing down what you believe you're receiving from God, what, what's occurred to you as you write it down, the same clarifying effect occurs. God will give you more detail. He will flesh it out as you, tr as you take that first step in obedience to write it out. Uh, with the added bonus that you have it there on a piece of paper that you can actually hand to the person and then run away. <laughs> Um, or better still, if you know who they are and where they live, you can post it to them in an encouraging card. Uh, so no get outs for introverts here. Okay, we've made ourselves available. We've been vulnerable. Finally, we need to be faithful. Now that means trusting that God will use you and that the things that you've heard and shared in faith were from God. <clears throat> Wayne Drain talks about this thing he calls the watermelon principle. You see, we're imperfect. Uh, we get things wrong sometimes. Not everything we think we've heard from God will actually be from God. But you don't 
you don't throw a watermelon out just because it's got some some pips in it that you don't want to eat. You can take a bite of a watermelon and enjoy that wonderful flavour and that luscious fruit, but then you can just spit out the pips. You can just reject the things that are bad that you don't want, but still hold on to the good. And it's the same with prophecy. It's the same with hearing from God. You hold on to the good and you just reject the bad. You just let it go. So if you share something and it didn't make sense or the person rejected it, then don't worry about it. Just let it go. Maybe you heard it wrong. Maybe maybe you, you got it wrong and it wasn't from God. Maybe, maybe it was from God. You heard it right, but the other person doesn't want to acknowledge the significance of it or the impact of it. Or maybe, like with Simeon and Anna in the temple, it's actually something that will only make sense 30 years from now. You see, this is God's story. Things we don't understand now may be tiny pieces of a puzzle that would be beautiful when it's finally revealed. So, does prayer and prophecy work like the film Sliding Doors? If Simeon had missed the train on the way to the temple that morning, or frankly, if he decided he couldn't even be bothered to go to the temple, even though the Spirit was prodding him, would Jesus still have lived the life he, he lived? Would he have died on the cross, been resurrected? Of course he would. Would Simeon have been struck down in disobedience? Unlikely. But would Simeon perhaps have gone to his deathbed, wondering whether he'd heard that prophecy correctly? Perhaps. Or perhaps, because God is wonderfully gracious, he would have engineered another chance encounter later on in Galilee. We'll never know, because Simeon was faithful and was prepared to be vulnerable. Now, I know I'm running on a bit, but I really want to finish by sharing a picture and a word that I believe God gave me as I was preparing this message. Oh, and by the way, um, I spent years listening to other Christians sharing pictures that they'd received from God and, and thinking that I was defective some way because I'd never received a picture so that somehow I was deficient. Don't fall into that trap. It's taken me a long time to realise this, but God doesn't give me pictures. I don't see pictures. Instead, he'll give me an idea or an impression of something. It's almost like a a narrative or a description of a picture, but it's, it's not an image in itself. So don't worry if you don't see pictures or images. Remember in verse 25 of our passage today, we're told that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that evokes some wonderful passages in Isaiah. And there's one in particular in Isaiah 57, where God says he sees our stubbornness. He sees our backsliding, but he chooses to heal us anyway and bring peace to us. It's in God's character to be merciful, to heal and to forgive. Now, I remember Andrew Goodman's sermon of a few weeks back. It was a warning about the dangers of complacency and backsliding in our spiritual journey, especially during these challenging times. And you know, he could have been preaching directly to me because my heart is at times heavy with, with my own apathy, with my own complacency. But the thing is, the Bible describes our spiritual journey as, as being like running a race, an endurance race. And also, we're called not to conform to the patterns of this world. So imagine 
this. It's like you're running in the London Marathon with thousands and thousands of other runners, right? But they're all running it this way. And you, you're running it that way against the flow. Is it any wonder that at times we get jostled, we get distracted, we get battered and bruised, and we get sometimes end up going backwards instead of forwards? In Isaiah 57, God has seen our backsliding and chooses to heal us anyway. And as I was preparing this sermon, God spoke to me and, and gave me this picture, <clears throat> or impression of a picture, if you will. Imagine you're on a, a giant treadmill, kind of like one of those moving walkways at the airport. <clears throat> you can see in the distance, you can see where you want to get to, the terminal building or whatever, and you're walking towards it. And then the travelator, the, the, the walkway starts moving, only it's moving the wrong way, it's moving backwards. So you, you, you open up your stride, you speed up a bit to make progress, but then the walkway speeds up. And so you speed up and the walkway speeds up and you speed up and pretty soon you are running just to stay still. And then tired, you trip, you stumble and you fall. And then you are just sat on this walkway, moving further and further away from where you want to be. Has your spiritual journey ever felt like that? I know mine has at times. But I believe God said to me, it doesn't matter how far from me you think you're sliding. What matters is which direction you're facing on the treadmill. It matters which direction you're facing, not how far you've come. You see, the direction you're facing shows the, the attitude of your heart to God, despite all the struggles despite your circumstances and despite the sin that so easily entangles. And that's why I believe God wants to say to you today and to me, keep going, well done. I think God challenged me by asking, well, where is it that you want to be? You think you've been going backwards, but all of that straining and striving just to, just to stay still, that's conditioned your heart. It's made you fitter and stronger. And brought to mind a wonderful evening at Breton Baptist Church where a complete stranger prophesied over me in a really powerful and specific way. And uh, at the end of the service, I, I went to talk to him to tell him how relevant this had been to thank him. And he said to me, you have the heart of David and I'd have you on my, on my ministry team in a heartbeat. <laughs> Fool, I thought, you have no idea who I am. I don't have the heart of David. I mean, that's what we say about the spiritual people, right? The, 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 super, the super holy ones, the ones who are always constantly praising God and just lifting their, their hands, lifting their hearts and, and just soaked in the spirit all the time. That's not me. That's not me. Or so I thought. You see, David, he was on the treadmill too. He had his struggles. <laughs> But the attitude of David's heart was for God. He yearned to be in relationship with God. And the yearning, that's the most important part. Applying self-discipline to your yearning, that's the tricky part. And that comes later, uh, hopefully, in my life will come as, as I continue in my relationship with God. But, but the yearning is the heart. You see, to have the heart of David 
is to, to keep facing in God's direction when everything else in your life is trying to drag you the opposite way. So take heart. Face yourself in the right direction towards God. Be available. Position yourself to hear from God. Be vulnerable. Have the courage to act on what you receive. And be faithful. Know that you have a part to play, however small it may seem, and trust that God will weave it into his story. Let's pray. Father God, my prayer today is simple. I ask you to reach out to all who are listening to this message for you to speak to them today and to give them the gift of, of the ability to hear your voice, Lord, to discern your voice from their own thoughts. Will you speak into their lives words of affirmation, words of love, and will you give them messages to encourage and share with other people? And as we do that, Lord, I pray that you will grow your kingdom here on earth that we will reach new people for you, Jesus. Amen.